Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. Restory Episode 3. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Now get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash restory. Now they have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or your MP3 player. Today, I'm welcoming Lauren to Restory, and she has an amazing story and not an easy one either, but God has been so, so good to her. She shares the story of how she met her husband, some of the major struggles that they went through, and then what happened toward the end, at the very end of their marriage, and how she has learned to walk forward in her journey. I don't want to spoil the story for you, so I'm going to leave it at that. Oh, and also I have uh, changed her name because her story is very sensitive. And so her name in this podcast is Lauren. So let's listen to Lauren's story. All right. It's so great to have my guest today on the Restory podcast. This is Lauren and she has changed her name and you'll understand for obvious reasons when we have our conversation But I'm so grateful for her bravery and coming forward and being willing to share a difficult story. But there's also some really cool things about her. We actually met when I was her camp counselor one million years ago. And now we're more like peers because that was, it's not that, we're not that um, far away in age. But anyway, I'm just really glad to have her here. And she's got an amazing story. So Lauren, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit about before we get into marriage and kids and all that fun stuff. I knew you primarily through the struggles that you had growing up. And I know that part of your story very well. But for our listeners, just so they can have some context, give us some examples of what life was like growing up and some of the things that you've had to work through with the Lord. Yeah, I grew up in a two parent family in kind of a suburb area. My mom was a believer, but my dad wasn't. She put us in church when I was about three, um, mostly to make my sister and I learn some good moral lessons so we wouldn't be hooligans. My dad never came to church except on Easter and Christmas, usually fell asleep during the service. He was okay with us going to church, but he didn't necessarily like it either. He allowed it, but it wasn't his favorite thing. Home was pretty chaotic for many, many reasons. It wasn't the most um, healthy place to be. I spent most of my growing up wanting to escape, and um, I didn't realize at the time quite how bad it was until I got much older and could look back on it objectively and go, yeah, that wasn't so great. Without going to great detail, it was pretty pretty dysfunctional. Yeah, and I think so many of us have this story of a, a painful childhood, and we still deal with it when we're 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years old. And and I wish that that wasn't true. And one of the things I love about what God does in all of our lives is that we can kind of create a different environment for our families so that they don't have these same kinds of stories. So you um, you graduated from high school, and then eventually, what happened? You went to college, and then uh, what happened after that? 
Well, I actually um, went about three years in college, a little bit more. And it was actually in college that I met my husband. We were youth workers at a church, um, the church that we'd grown up in, um, working in youth ministry. So that was probably the late 80s, early 90s. And went went away about an hour and a half to college. Um, it was great for me to get away from home and just sort of become my own person away from all of that, sort of recreate myself. But we, my husband and I had a friendship first, which was great. And that sort of developed while I was in college. He was about an hour and a half away. But we wrote letters back when we didn't have email or cell phones or anything. We wrote letters back and forth. And um, that's how we kind of stayed in contact. So we just kind of developed a friendship out of that. That's cool. And yeah, my husband and I also wrote letters. It, it's the ancient art that no one knows how to do anymore. Yeah. So um, it's a really actually kind of a nice way to get to know each other because it's uh, you can kind of write down all the things you're thinking and it's in one space instead of in like little sound bites as we have now with texting and stuff. So, okay. So you didn't work dating or anything like that. You were good friends. And then what kind of, what was the trigger to kind of change that around? Well, we'd gone on a lot of missions trips together. And so, of course, when you're in a van full of teenagers and you're leading and spending a lot of time together, that helps um, cement the friendship, a lot of deeper talks. Both of us wanted to go into the mission field. So that was really the one thing that we had probably most in common besides our faith. Um, I think it was, to me, hard to find someone that was interested in going overseas. It's a pretty strange concept unless someone else is being called to that as well. So that probably was, was the big draw. We had this friendship. He actually was engaged in the middle of it. Quite a surprise to his friends and to me. And that's kind of when I realized that I liked him more than just a friend. I thought, well, wait a minute. I have more feelings for him than I thought I did, but now he's engaged. And we kept our friendship. We kept talking and he soon realized that he was talking to me more than he was talking to his fiance, who actually was in Europe at the time. And he flew over there to break it up with her. Um, and that's when things got a little bit more serious here at home. And we went to a wedding together. And that's the, those are the killers. You go to a wedding together, that's the end. <laughs> and kind of when things started to be a little more serious, it became a little bit more formal. And we only officially dated, oh, probably five months, six months before we got engaged. And then I stopped going to school, moved back down to the um, same city he was in so we could be at the same place um, as we were planning a wedding. And six months after that, we were married. That's how it was for us too. Six months dating, six months married. And so you, uh, you got married and you knew him pretty well. I mean, that, that's a long, how many years had you known him before you got married? Oh, probably two, maybe three. So you had some time to see him in different situations. And looking back on things now, was there anything about him in retrospect that might have been a red flag for you? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and you know, when you're in love or, whatever, you tend to overlook little things because, you know, it's just, oh, it's just a little habit or it's just, oh, it'll go away or I'll fix it once we're married. Yes. <laughs> I think in light of what we'll talk about in a few minutes, the, the biggest red flags I had, and they weren't red flags to me then, but looking back, they should have been, is sort of what he did in his spare time when we weren't together. He really liked fixing cars, which is not a bad thing, but he was very much drawn to magazines that had cars in them, hot rods, and turns out that it was a little more of a draw to see the girls in the magazines. And we had a date where we had no money. We had a date where we went to the store, bought magazines, and brought them home and read them with ice cream. So pretty inexpensive, inexpensive date. And he said, well, I'm glad you're here because now I won't buy any magazines with girls in them. 
Hmm. And I thought, oh, isn't that great? You know, he's so honest and full of integrity. He's not, you know, isn't that wonderful? And, you know, looking back, that should have been a huge red flag right there. And I really, I don't think of it right then. And, you know, and everything else looked fine, except for that one thing. I think everything else at that point looked okay. We looked normal and did a ton of church stuff. And he was a pastor. And, you know, we looked like just the happily married Christian couple. So um, you got married, and when did you start realizing things might be different than you expected them to be? You know, it was a little while into our marriage. Um, you know, things, of course, when you're even newly married, it's the honeymoon period, right? Mm-hmm. And again, in retrospect, I should have noticed there was a lot of late nights at work. Mm-hmm. Um, he would not come home until late. And I just thought, well, he's our hard worker, and he's doing a lot of great stuff. And, you know, eventually... Um, I found some evidence on his computer that he wasn't just working. And I confronted him on that. Um, and it was the apology that said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I clicked on the wrong thing. You know, it won't happen again. Um, that should have been another red flag. And it was, but it wasn't as big of a flag as I should have noticed. I mean, it was, it should have been waving really wild in my head. And it was just a, you know, to me, it just seemed like a mistake. Well, and he explained it, and you yeah. trusted him, and you believed him, which is normal. Yep, it's normal. You know, every guy clicks on the wrong thing once in a while, and it was no big deal to me. And, you know, I accepted the apology, you know, the apology and moved on. And did you have other relationships in your life at this time with friends or, or um, someone you could share these things? Or did you even know that this was something that should bother you yet? I'm not sure at that point I knew it was something that should bother me. I mean, I think it did bother me because I mentioned it, but it wasn't a big enough deal at that point to me that I even felt like I had to say anything. I think when someone's in ministry, you try so hard to keep up that front mm-hmm. and to admit that anything would be wrong when everyone said that we were the perfect couple and you know that we were just made for each other and everything should be great. You don't ever want to say, wait a second, things aren't so great. Um, and I think it would have been hard at that time to admit to people that something was you know, not right. And I had friends, but all the friends were in ministry. Oh, yeah. So I did have a lot of friends outside of the Christian community or even the church that we went to. So that really limited my ability to speak. I didn't really feel comfortable saying something was wrong. Right. What happened next? When did things, when did you start having deeper suspicions or when did things start unraveling a little more? And when did you have kids in the middle of all this? We had kids. Um, my first child was born about four years after our, um, after our wedding. And that she was a very, very difficult child. She was mm. very colicky, just screamed all the time. And I, he started staying at work more. And part of it, I thought, well, you know, the baby's, you know, screams constantly. Maybe he just needs an escape. He's an introvert, needs some quiet time. Um, you know, I know he's working hard on, on youth stuff. And I sort of made the excuse for him that he needed to get away from a screaming baby. And I wanted to get a ring for a screaming baby <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, but I just discovered that he was looking at more porn on the, on the computer. So that was the second time I had actually caught him. And I still accepted the apologies. Um, and I think my focus was more on trying to, to get this baby to just be a happy little baby. Um, we found out later she had some sensory issues and that's why she was so fussy, but we didn't know it then. Mm-hmm. Um, so my time and my, and my mind were so occupied with this, with this baby that again, I accepted the apologies. It got worse as time went on. More late nights, I found more stuff on his computer sites that he'd clicked on. And, and I realized it wasn't just something he'd accidentally clicked on. It was very intentional. It was the same sites over and over again. And I think it started to be 
more apparent in our intimate life that he was definitely getting some satisfaction out of other things. I was not sensual enough or Mm -hmm. feminine enough or woman enough to satisfy him. And, you know, I had to live up to the standard that there's nobody can live up to. That was very much said and, and pushed on me that, you know, you're not, you're not quite enough. And so that was, you know, that's when I really started to feel it internally that this is not just his behavior, but it's coming home now. Um, and it's entering our marriage at that point. And I think all women and all humans struggle with insecurity. I mean, we all want to be, you know, we want to have it all together or we want to think that we're okay. And so to hear something in such an intimate way, like that's probably the most intimate thing we'll ever do in our lives. To have someone say you weren't enough must have been devastating for you. It was. I wasn't the most confident person back then. I think I'm way more confident now. But you just you just roll with it. You know, I not being confident in the first place, you know, it was just another nail in the confidence is you're, you're not enough. You need, you know, you need to prove yourself. Um, and that was really difficult for me. And because of some of my, my childhood issues, um, it was even harder to respond to him. And that really, now that I look back on it and can identify it for what it was, um, it was really abuse by him. And not respecting my boundaries and not listening to me and, and to just manipulate. Um, that would be, you know, one word that I would, that I would really strongly use is it was manipulation. And that's when I really started to internalize a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, my story and my story of sexual abuse and just the, you know, the clawing my way back has been hard, but I have a supportive spouse. And so that just, I can't imagine what that would be like if you hear that and you're just trying to be an okay woman. And I also think there's a lot of pressure for Christian women in particular to be all that in a bag of chips for their husbands. And sometimes it feels like an impossible standard. And then to have your spouse reiterate to you that you weren't enough just feels like a really big mountain of shame, you mm-hmm. know, and really, you know, he should have been, I mean, not to, you know, point the fingers excessively, but he should have been the one feeling that shame because he was the one enslaved. What kind of things happened next in your, in your relationship? And I know you had another child that kind of, how did you work through the new things that you learned or did it just kind of, how did it all get exposed or did it fully get exposed? I don't know if it fully got exposed to everyone. We had another child. She was five months old when we moved onto the missions field. The plan with that was a five-year plan that we were going to move for five years and and stick it out for five years and then evaluate after that whether we would stay for longer or whether we would come home and switch gears. I think the added stress for him going out of the mission field and really struggling with language, um, that was a big issue with him. He really felt inadequate on the field. And he um, definitely internalized that. And I think at the time he was really struggling with just his performance. Like if I don't do well, I'm disappointing God. Mm-hmm. Um, if I don't do well, then, you know, I'm a failure. And I don't think at that point he really got a grasp of that God accepted him just for trying, you know, just for being willing to go and not for any, you know, didn't condemn him for anything else, you know, loved him for saying yes, loved us for saying yes. And the language and stuff came easier for me. So I think that was hard for him to try to be the communicator there and, and the leader, but yet not understanding anything. And then having you know, me know a little bit more, that was tough for him. He was really discouraged. And of course, the stress of it made him turn to what he 
knew to make him feel good. So he had a little office in the upstairs of a church and um, again, spending late nights at church. And but during the day, the kids and I actually stopped in. I needed to use the phone book back when we had phone books and to get, to get directions to a birthday party. And I walked in pretty unannounced and he had stuff up on his computer. And that was sort of the, in some ways, the last straw for me because I had, I had seen sites. I mean, I'd seen the browser history and all that kind of stuff, but I had never actually walked in on him in the middle of it. And I, at the time I pretended like I didn't see anything and he knew I did, but he never, you know, I didn't say anything up in that moment. And so I finally had to confront him about it. And he had interns working for him. And I said, how can you be telling your interns to not do this stuff, to not look at porn, to not be online when you're doing the same thing? And I said, you know, a, a leader in ministry needs to be not doing this. And he actually acknowledged that I was right. And at that point, we told our missions board. And I kind of felt like the one that was at fault for them pulling us off. And it was a mutual decision to pull off. And we last, so we only lasted a year and a half on the field and um, told to come home. And there was supposed to be some follow-up with him, um, which really never happened. Mm. And, but in the meantime, we were not, to I was not to tell anyone why we were coming home. We were just coming home and never gave a, a reason to our friends or family or supporters or anything. It's just that we were back. Um, and that was hard for me because I didn't want it to seemed like it was my fault. Like I couldn't hack the mission field. It was really his issue. Right. But it was very much kept a secret from, from just about everybody. There was a few people who, who knew, but I could count them on one hand. So that was difficult to come home and not have anyone know. And to me, for me carrying the secret and him not saying anything, that was tough. Yeah, there's something really powerful and negatively powerful about secrets. It makes you f a little crazy there's a lot of energy that's taken up in kind of maintaining a facade and that can just, you know, be heavy, just really heavy. So you're back home, back from the dream of the mission field and, and he's got this secret that he isn't openly dealing with other than the, the mission board knows about it now. Then what does he do next? Well, we lost everything basically. Uh, we sold our condo down on the, on the field. We had you know, planned on staying. So we, we ended up purchasing housing. Lost that, lost his career, um, came back with basically nothing, no mm. direction, you know, no real way to support ourselves at that time. We, you know, we did sell the housing. So we had a little bit of money, but not very much. Had to put our oldest in kindergarten. So it was just that transition for her. But there was never really any action on his part to change. Um, you think that being disrupted like that would trigger some kind of remorse or, or a, identifying the problem for what it was you know, naming it, being a sex addict. But there was really, there was none of that. Uh, one of the things that the people that we were in ministry with suggested is for him to go to some Sexaholics Anonymous meetings. That never happened. Um, I think he went to one counseling appointment and called it quits. I don't think he really wanted to face what he was, what he was doing. And I don't think he saw the consequences at that point. He definitely, when we got home, pulled away from my kids and I, um, wouldn't engage in family activities, wouldn't, you know, go camping with us, which we had done for years. I ended up just saying, well, you're not going to go. I'm taking the kids. They mm -hmm. were three and six. <laughs> and I, wow. Or two, two and five. And I said, oh, we're going. Oh, wow. uh, so tried to maintain a normal life for my kids as possible. 
but there was never real action on his part of that period in our life to change or to be any different. And that part of it was, was hard. And I felt like I just had to live with it. That this is what I, my marriage was going to be like. It did get to the point eventually where he was looking for other women on online dating sites. Hmm. And that was, that was very difficult to, and I, I asked him about it and he said he was just looking for other women to talk to. <laughs> I'm pretty sure talking wasn't quite, quite the agenda. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that's, that was kind of the pinnacle of the whole thing. And there was again, no, you know, no action, no willingness to change, no willingness to get counseling. And I just kind of resigned myself to the fact that this is what, it, this is what it was. And if he finds someone else and we split, you know, that's how it was going to be. That's a really dark place to be um, and kind of a resigned place to be. Um, it sounds like you hoped, and I think, you know, looking at it from the outside, I would have had the same hope that rock bottom would have hit. But in some of these kinds of instances where it's not necessarily just sex addiction, but other addictions, you think that you look at other people and you think this is definitely rock bottom. And yet there's like seven more layers of rock bottom that they have to get to. And you're like, what is it going to take? And then you pray those crazy prayers that are like, Oh Lord, whatever it takes. And you're, you're, those are the most frightening prayers ever to pray because the rock bottom seems obvious to you, but not to the other person. Today for the listeners of Restory, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial to check out their services. Now today I suggest you try The Quarryman's Wife, which is a novel that I wrote and actually is the first novel that I wrote and it parallels Lauren's story today. So I thought it might be a blessing to you. So you can download The Quarryman's Wife or any other book that you've been wanting to listen to at audibletrial.com forward slash Restory. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash restory for a free audiobook. The rock bottom seems obvious to you, but not to the other person. Right. And I had it, I had seen a counselor sort of well, a little bit behind his back. And she encouraged me to make a list of the things that he was basically required to do yeah. in order to get this thing turned around and kind of issue in a little ultimatum and say, you know, these issues need to be addressed or we're going to have to spend some time apart. Not necessarily mentioning the word divorce because you know, I really, really didn't ever want to mention that word. Um, it's something that we had talked about at the beginning of our marriage to never say. We would mm-hmm. never say divorce because that opened the door. But it was, it was an ultimatum. You need to do, do these steps. And if you don't, then, you know, this is not working. And I did give that to him and it, there was pretty much no reaction. I mean, it didn't spark conversation. It didn't, he didn't really say anything about it. And I thought, well, it's there on paper. You know, it was up to him at that point. So how long did this go on until everything fell apart? You know, that was, thinking it was the fall of 2004, that that, that it really came to a head like that. And that was, you know, that was the part where I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to find someone and leave. I don't, Mm. I really didn't know. It was a huge question mark. And I was just trying to to parent two young, two young kids and try to be normal. So you were like how many years into your marriage at this point? I think it was 10. Okay. So it was a long time. Mm -hmm. It was a long time. And um, shortly after I talked to him about this ultimatum, we found out he was getting sick and sort of sicker and sicker. And we're trying to figure out what was going on. And through a time where, you know, doctor's visits and that kind of stuff, we found out that he had cancer. Mm. And so that totally shifted the whole game plan to 
the focus was no longer on his addiction, no longer on our marriage, no longer on a relationship. Um, now it was the big C word, you know, we're dealing with cancer. So it really, you know, it shifted everything. It changed everything. I would love to say that it changed his addiction. I don't know from that point forward what he was involved in because we were just trying to keep it together, just trying to keep life going. So that was, that was a big changer. Didn't expect that one. Yeah. And so he's, you know, the financial burden of that, the fear that's involved in that, I'm sure for him, for you, for the kids, how old were the kids when the diagnosis came? They were three and six. What happened in between then and him losing his life? He had a really curable form of cancer. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is very, very treatable. Caught it early. Um, He went through seven rounds of chemo you know, really sick, lost his Mm -hmm. hair, really was still working through the first couple months. He bought a business, still working. And then, and it was a pretty physical job. And, you know, he just got too weak to do it. Um, Just the effects of chemo were really harsh. And he just, you know, he just physically couldn't do it. So he sold that. So seven rounds of chemo out of eight, you know, things seemed to be going fairly well. And in the spring of 2005, or I don't know, I've lost count, but Hmm. Uh, that spring, six months after he was diagnosed, he got what we thought was just allergies, and that turned into hmm, possibly a cold, um, turned into more where he was really struggling health-wise, ended up to be pneumonia, and that was the beginning of the end. We didn't realize it at that point. They tried to do high-powered antibiotics in the hospital, and um, we thought it would just be a couple days, and those things would kick in, be back home, everything would be fine. Nothing ever kicked in. And that started two months in ICU. Wow. And I spent most of the days there, got the kids ready, off to school, off to preschool, came to the hospital, sat there for seven, eight, nine hours. Somebody else would pick up the kids. I'd finally get them, make dinner, and then take them back to the hospital so they can see their dad. He was in a coma most of the time. Um, so I don't know if he realized that the kids and I were there or not, but that's just what you do mm-hmm. when someone is sick. And, and I fought hard for his health care. And, you know, I wanted him to live. I wasn't so jaded by his addiction that I didn't want him to live. You know, every ounce of me wanted him to live. He had a family. They had, you know, we had two girls that needed him. And and I fought tooth and nail, you know, for him. And, you know, and I, it was probably six weeks into that ICU stay that it started to sink in that this may not have a favorable outcome. Either he would wake up and go through months and months and months of rehab, or he might not wake up. And so slowly his system started just shutting down because his lungs weren't functioning well. Um, he was on a ventilator that whole time. And so he went into the hospital in March and he passed away in May. Wow. So it was just quick. It was very quick and, and not what we expected at all. So I had kids who were three and six preschool and first grade and you know, had to tell them that their dad was gone. And, mm. and that's, you know, one of the toughest things, I think, is to, to tell them. Wow, that's a big, that's a big heavy burden. I can't even imagine saying those words. So he passed away and you started to live as a widow and probably with some very convoluted feelings of grief and some secrets and things you couldn't even talk about with other people as they were grieving someone who they thought they knew and you were grieving someone you very much knew, someone flawed like that. And so how was your journey of grief and recovery afterwards? 
You know, I remember even at the memorial service, lots and lots of people came. It was packed and people stood up and said all these great things. And, and our marriage had some really great fun times. You know, it wasn't all misery. We really, we were matched. I mean, it was, it was a good match and um, we had some really great adventures. And, and so not all of it was miserable. And I could appreciate all the great things that he did for people. And he did a lot of things for people. He led people to the Lord. He did missions trips. He was truly very caring about others. And that definitely came across. Um, Love to to lead worship. So there were some really positive things. And I could accept those things at the at the service. But there was this little tiny part of me, even at the service, that was like, yeah, but there's this whole thing that you don't even know. And that was that was tough. So I sort of had to put on this grieving widow show a little bit, knowing that I wasn't 100 percent grieving. Um, I definitely grieved for the loss for my children of their father, no matter how present or not present he had been in their lives. He was still their dad Mm -hmm. and they still needed a dad. And so I was grieving a lot for them. And that first year was just a fog. And I wanted to keep our life as normal as possible for the girls. I didn't want it to drastically change um, because they needed that stability. But there was always that, you know, people don't really know. Um, I don't think I really, I don't think it really sunk in until about a year later when that fog kind of lifted. And I started to look back on our marriage and what we were dealing with so close to his death and realize, you know, even in his sickness um, of cancer, he never dealt with the other sickness. Mm-hmm. He never admitted the the addiction. And and that was hard for me to have him die, never really, you know, saying anything about the other. So that grieving process was really, was double-edged for me. I missed having a companion and a sounding board, um, someone to talk with, someone to make decisions, because making 100% of the decisions all the time, I've come to realize is not that fun. Um, especially for someone that doesn't like making decisions. And I think I saw too what it should have been and what it could have been and having, not having regrets, but really, you know, grieving the loss of what our marriage could have ended up like it, you know, had he repented and been remorse, it could have been awesome. We could have had great story together, but you know, there's probably the, I didn't, I don't want to say good riddance because that sounds really callous and really harsh. But there was a part of me that that thought, you know, maybe this is God's escape for us, for my girls and I. Had he continued in his addiction, had he met someone else online, had he left us, we would have been in a world of hurt. Just the practical needs, the financial needs. I was a stay-at-home mom to totally shift gears like that and to really put us in a place where we would have had very few options, even just, you know, where to live, how to make money. It would have been extremely difficult just in the practical sense, not to mention the emotional sense. So I kind of started to think, you know, maybe this was God's escape for us. Um, Maybe this is better than what might have been. And that was a weird place to be. You know, I felt almost guilty for having those feelings, but I, but I had them. And, you know, I think they were probably as normal as they, as they could be at the time. And he, you know, the, the knowledge that there's a lot of untied strings of the story. And that makes grief even harder because 
there was never this like closing conversation of, I'm sorry I did that, or I acknowledge that it was weird and I shouldn't have been addicted, or I, I wish I would have been different. None of that, no resolution happened. And so there's that part of grief that is, you can't undo that. But there's also the joyful side of being a Christian and knowing he doesn't have to deal with that issue anymore on the other side. He's been finally set free. And I'm sure that there are people out there listening to this podcast who are desperately addicted to something, whether it be sex or there it may even be predators out there and they can't seem to shake it. And so there is that, at least as we follow Christ and we get to the other side, all those demons that I have and all the things I struggle with, at least I'm going to be set free from those eventually. I'm grateful for that because I still struggle. But I can just see that that grief would be very complex and very convoluted and weird. <laughs> so in, you know, so you're, you're a mom, you're a widow, you've got these little kids and you're learning how to trust God. You're still dealing with some past issues. Um, over the past nine or eight years, what have you learned about God that has been helpful to you or that has informed your healing? I think there's a couple things. Um, you know, one of the huge positives out of this whole thing is I think I have a deeper understanding for what other women are struggling with. I don't think if I hadn't gone through this, I would be able to relate to some of the people in my life now as well and be able to listen to their stories and have compassion for them and pray with them. I was a part of a ministry that that focused on survivors of abuse or spouses with sexual addictions and um, all sorts of all sorts of uh, stuff around that and being able to hear other women's stories and to be able to sit down and really ask God to come into their story for them to to see it with him in it with God healing and ministering and loving and seeing and knowing them on a deeper level. I think that I am coming to realize uh, some of those things that God does see and he knows, um, he hears. I'm still learning those things because when it's been ingrained in you for so long that, that you're not worth loving and you're not mm. worth taking care of and protecting, it's definitely a process. And I'm still in that process. I don't know if I'll ever be out of that process, which is not, you know, fatalistic, but it's just, you know, layers come up and, and you got to do it all over again. I think the best things that have come out of the situation, one of them is the relationship with my kids. And I am so, so grateful that God has brought us together and not blown us apart. Uh, you know, they were so little, they don't, and to this day, they don't know a lot of this about their dad, but when they were little, I wanted to give them normal and we stuck together. We stuck together through thick and thin, and I just invested a ton in my relationship with them because I knew that they needed me. They needed a healthy enough mom to help them through their process. And so uh, we have done so much together, so many adventures together, so many talks together that they truly, my girls are best friends. They are truly their best friends. And we have an, a relationship that other people notice. And I've had other even students of mine come up and say, how come you're so close to your kids? Or, you know, you're a cool mom. Your kids just love you. And I know why. You know, I don't always get to, t I'm obviously I don't get to tell them the whole story, but, but that's the kind of relationship that we have. We're very, very close. And I am positive we would have never had that relationship um, had we not gone through um, his death. So I am just eternally grateful for the relationship I have with my kids. And they are best friends because they have lived the same experience. And there's no other person on earth that has lived this exact same one. So they know that they really need to hang on to each other. 
I think one of the other things is I'm more confident and independent now. Some of that is great. Uh, <laughs> is great sometimes, but I've also learned to voice what I need and mm-hmm. whether that need is always met or not is a, is a different thing, but I'm more confident in, in who I am. Most of the time I can do more things for myself. And I, I think the kids have seen that, that women can do a lot. They can do plumbing and they can do all those <laughs> things. Um, so I'm grateful for how that shaped my personality and shaped um, how I go through life. And it's, it's been really amazing. People often ask me, you know, so how are you doing if they haven't seen us in a long time? And honestly, I can say we're doing great. And and they kind of ask it in a not condescending tone, but, you know, how are you really doing And <laughs> with, with the grief and without having him? And I can say we're fine. You know, we're doing really well. And. I had somebody say one time, you know, how are you doing under the circumstances? And I thought, well, under the circumstances is interesting because if you're under circumstances, it seems like you can't get up if you're always under them. Maybe despite circumstances would be better, but the circumstances now are not necessarily a burden. Sure, there's times where I want to throw up my hands and, you know, single parenting is for the birds and want to quit just like any other, you know, mom out there. Um, And I think single parents especially, you know, I don't know if I get frazzled more than the average mom, but sometimes I feel like I do get more frustrated. But God's been really good to us. He's provided for us every step of the way. You know, we have a house. We have um, each other. We have a job. And all those things, I point out to my kids that that's God's provision for us. And just when I start to panic about finances or how we're, you know, how we're going to make it and, and, you know, what the future is going to be like. God steps in and he does something, whether it's financial, whether it's just personal, uh, whether it's just doing something really fun with the kids. And I always point out to them, God hasn't forgotten us. And it's as much as a reminder to me as it is for them that God hasn't forgotten. Even even when I panic, even when things seem to be falling apart again, he's been there. Uh, Is it a process to keep seeing him there? And, and And I have to definitely sometimes just say, help, you know come closer, come in. Um, we need you. But he's provided. He's been there. He hasn't forgotten us. And that's been huge for us, for all three of us. And yeah. I think my kids are closer to the Lord now uh, because of that, because they've seen how he has stepped in in very tangible ways. And I think God, when he does small things, it seems sweeter to me. You know, like having a house is awesome, but it's like these little things that we need that he knows that we need and he gives them to us. It builds my faith. You've really answered my my next question um, about being restored and restoried. But in terms of you and what you see in your future, your girls are growing up, one's in college. How do you see yourself being restoried? Uh, What's God preparing for you next, do you think? That's a lot of question because I have no idea. <laughs> Predict the future. <laughs> future. You know, things are drastically changing with us. And, you know, one of the ways God's provided has been social security, just financially. Mm-hmm. And that's changing as the kids get older and become adults. So that part of my life will change. I don't know. I don't have any idea how God's going to work that out, mm-hmm. um, finances. But I trust that he is. And again, he's always provided for us. He's never let us flounder. And... So I just trust that he's doing that. I honestly don't know. I think it, it'll it take a lot of prayer for me and be and for me to be open to things. I tend to be the kind of person that, you know, somebody presents something to me and I think of a hundred reasons why that's not going to work and why <laughs> I can't do that. And I think that's one thing that I need to be praying about and to be shifting gears in my own mind this, these next couple of years of, you know, 
what is God calling me to do in the next couple of years? Obviously, my focus right now is my daughter who's still at home and nothing drastic is going to change because she needs that stability. Um, she needs me to be present. Beyond that, I really don't know. Um, am I open to change? Am I open to, you know, possibly a relationship if God were to drop somebody on my front door and say, this is the perfect person for your family? Yeah, I might be open to that, but I just don't know. And one of my prayers is that God will really make it obvious to me. Um, I'm not so good at subtle hints. <laughs> I really need him to to be obvious about it. So my whole life plan, you know, I really didn't think much beyond raising my kids. And that's been a super important thing for me to be there for them. So the door's kind of open at this point. I don't really know what God's going to do. It involves a lot of trust, which is sometimes hard. Well, a lot of the time it's hard. It's so hard. I I hear you. I hate trust. I, I love it. I love it when I'm doing yeah. it, but I'm really bad at it. But I also see too, just to encourage you from the outside of just this desire to really let your experience be inform you in the way that you love others and the way that you carry burdens and the way that you can um, have empathy for people um, that you might not have had empathy before had you not gone through all the things that you've gone through. So um, no matter what happens, I just know God will continue to use you to shoulder the weight of, of heavy things. And you've had to bear that weight. You've learned how to give it over to the Lord, not perfectly, just like the rest of us, but now you can be a weight bearer for others. And I'm just so grateful for that. So with that, I'm just going to thank Lauren for her honesty and her testimony. And thank you so much for coming on the Restory podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Restory. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, thank you for Lauren's story. Thank you for her perseverance. Thank you for holding her through a very difficult grief, one where she had to be quiet about it. And um, I pray for her family, for her two children, and I pray that you would continue to bring healing to them as they walk in light of your love. Lord, I pray for those listening today who this uh, story has touched a nerve. Maybe they've lost someone recently, or maybe they are suffering in a, a strange or difficult or surprising or bewildering marriage. Lord, would you just shoulder those burdens today? Would you take them? Would you mold them? Would you take the things that we face that we don't like or that we wish we didn't have to face? And would you make something beautiful out of it just as you've done with Lauren's life? Thank you for loving us through the trials. Thanks for bringing new stories to our lives from the broken places. And I, I'm so grateful that you seem to do your best work in those broken places. For those grieving today, would you just help us to know that you grieve alongside, that when Lazarus died, you wept and you were sad and you felt the numbness and the anguish of grief you were that suffering servant, Jesus, and so help us to realize that we can go to you because you absolutely understand grief. We just lay our lives down before you, and again, we just ask that you would restore us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about today's shows with links and extended information, please go to RestoryShow.com 3, and may you live a brand new story this week. <laughs>